Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Playforth. Dr. Playforth is a board-certified pediatrician and mother of three who is passionate about approaching parenting with nuance. Her goal is to help parents develop the confidence to trust their intuitions within an evidence-based framework. She is on the Healthcare Advisory Board for BabyList, has contributed to Huffington Post, CNN, NBC, Kevin MD, and Insider Magazine, and is featured as a top doc for both Northern Virginia Magazine and The Washingtonian. In today's episode, we talk about the COVID vaccine and children. Given the recent announcement of the EUA of the Pfizer vaccine for five to 12 year olds, I wanted to put together a rapid Q&A with Dr. Playforth that was answering many of the questions I have received in the past few weeks. I hope that you find this episode helpful. Here we go. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Good morning, Dr. Playforth. We are excited to have you here today to talk about the COVID vaccine and children, a hot topic these days. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I've received so many questions about this. Yeah, it's it's everywhere right now, right? I mean, as we expected it to be because, you know, essentially COVID is everywhere. But yeah, I have so many questions coming in on a daily basis about this. And so I thought, you know what, let's let's get an expert on here and, you know, answer some of these questions from the community. And I know that these are questions that so many different people have. And I hope this is helpful for everybody. So what we'll do is kind of just this rapid fire Q&A session. And uh, at the end, I just ask you a couple little random questions that are totally off topic. And then we'll conclude. Let's just start with the actual research that we have that supports the COVID vaccine in children. How was it conducted and what were the results? I think that's a good place to start. So pediatric trials that were done were randomized control trials for the age group age 5 to 11. And the dose that they used for this group was a third of the adult dose, 10 micrograms. That's because in the early phase trials, they found that that was the smallest dose that resulted in the fewest side effects, but still generated that robust immune response that was similar to the response that was achieved at higher doses. Um, And then in the next part of the trial, they had about 2,200 children aged 5 to 11 who were randomly assigned to receive either a 10 microgram dose of the vaccine, which was about two thirds of the participants, or a placebo. And all were given two doses three weeks apart, similar to grownups. And one of the big differences, I think, that's not always clear between the pediatric and adult trials was in the way that they measured outcomes. Um, You know, in adults, they were looking at rates of severe illness, hospitalization, death. But in kids, these outcomes are so rare, which is good, that they actually had to look at a proxy, which was antibody levels, which is a reasonable proxy to look at, right? Because the antibody levels are indicative of an immune response. And what we found was that the immune response was comparable to that of young adults aged 16 to 25. They did also look at efficacy data in terms of actual symptomatic infection. Those numbers are low. So there were 19 documented cases of COVID infection, three in the vaccine group and 16 in the placebo group, and all were confirmed to be Delta, which translates to being about just under 91% effective, which is a great number. Now, I have a quick question for you. The dosage for the the 12 to 16, that that age group, is that also 10 micrograms? It's not. It's higher, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's it's the adult dose. Are they thinking about possibly making it 10 micrograms for that age group as well since it since we do have such great research for these younger kiddos or are we keeping it where it is? I think it depends a little bit. Um, you know, they have to look at younger kids generate very robust immune responses. 
So they actually have to look at that age group probably and to, to make sure that even if they drop the dose, that they're still able to generate that um, antibody response. I think there's an argument to be made for doing that because the side effects are so much lower, but they also want to make sure that they are getting everybody as protected as possible. Yeah. So what were some of the most common side effects in this age group? I know that this, of course, as a parent, right, this is, I mean, if you did receive the COVID vaccine, as I personally did, you do not want your child to feel the way like, like we had pretty significant uh, side effects, I think probably because, you know, our, our family did have COVID early, early on. And the second dose for me was put me right in my butt in bed for two days. So what was what was the outcome of that during this study? Yes, I agree. Um, I actually got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine when I was pregnant, and you know I think the side effects from that were probably not as bad, but I definitely was laid up for a day or two there, and you know nauseated, just feeling kind of crummy. The good news is with the pediatric population with this dose, the side effects A were similar to the ones experienced by adults, but not as severe. So there were some local reactions such as pain at the injection site, swelling, redness. And then some kids ended up with more of a systemic reaction such as fatigue, headaches, body aches, all lasting, you know, no more than maybe a couple days. But interestingly, fever, which is a side effect that we have seen with the adult population, um, was not as common in the young kids. Mm-hmm. There weren't really any severe adverse effects. And the way that these these trials have to report adverse effects is that anything that happens needs to be included. So, you know, there were three adverse events in the vaccine group, but one of them was a fracture, which obviously isn't a result of the vaccine, but they just had to kind of report it. Yeah, I had also I had seen that. So let's talk about the the sample size. I know that this is a very common topic um, in those that do not, you know, wish to vaccinate kids. And they use this a lot, you know, by saying, you know, that the sample size was, you know, quote, too small. What do you think about the sample size? Yeah, this has come up a few times in my DMs too. And I think it may be partly because not that many people are aware that pediatric trials for medications and vaccines that follow adult trials are often smaller in number. This is not atypical. In the adult trials, there were more than 21,000 participants in each group, those who received the vaccine and those who received placebo. In the 12 to 15-year age group, there were about 1,100. And then in this younger age group, you know, there, there were it was smaller than the adult group, for sure. Mm-hmm. It is true mm-hmm. that the small sample size means that we are perhaps less likely to pick up a very rare side effect. Um, But Mm -hmm. you have to look at it in the context of how many of these vaccines have been given out. More than 5 billion doses of this vaccine have been given out worldwide. And what we know so far is reassuring. I'm not ruling out that we might see a surprising or a rare side effect, but I think it's quite unlikely. And certainly the risks of that don't outweigh the benefits of preventing a vaccine-preventable illness from my perspective. So let's dive into that question then. Because of course, this is another one of the big questions I feel like that that are out there. So why vaccinate a population that, as, as we mentioned earlier, that isn't necessarily having a significant amount of, you know, long-term effects that we know of yet and death and hospitalizations, you know, in general, I mean, obviously kids that are, you know, more susceptible to illness, those that have chronic conditions and things like that are are more likely to end up in the hospital. But you know, we're just talking about the child that, you know, has no medical problems, is a very healthy. Why should we be vaccinating those children? It's a good question. And the truth is, the risk of a severe short-term outcome, like you said, such as death, in an otherwise healthy child is very, very low. But low is not the same as zero. And if you if look at what the data that was presented to the FDA, a third of the hospitalized cases had no underlying health conditions. So it would otherwise be classed as that, that child that you just described, that low-risk child. But even if you that, take that into account, even if we know that children are less likely to have a severe outcome, they're still as likely to be infected with SARS-CoV-2. I think as a pediatrician and as a mom, what What bothers me is that this is an unpredictable virus. You know, from my perspective, the risks of the long-term unknowns, which are truly unknowns with a novel and unpredictable virus, are higher than the risks of a vetted Mm -hmm. vaccine, especially when we know that vaccines don't cause long-term unknown outcomes. 
Even with children who have mild disease, we don't know if that's going to translate to other problems down the line. You know, there are some small studies that, such as one out of CHOP, that looked at biomarkers in the blood, and it was very small. It was like 50 children, but biomarkers in the blood of children who tested positive for COVID. And they found that even those with very, very mild or asymptomatic disease had these markers, which in adults are associated with blood vessel damage. Whether that is going to have some clinical significance or not is remains to be determined. But as a parent, I would much rather avoid that risk of that long-term unknown from the disease. Uh, there's also kind of the short-term outcomes, right? So you vaccinate your child, and then they can go back to having a little bit more of a normal life, which we really desperately need them to. Even our low-risk children, they deserve to have play dates. They deserve to go to school and to participate freely and without worry in their extracurriculars, to, to not worry about being quarantined. And I think the ticket to doing that in a safe way is this vaccine. Yeah, yeah. All those points are, are great. And, you know, I will also bring up Randomly, right before we hopped on this podcast, I briefly didn't get to read the whole thing yet, but I had signed up for a newsletter from um, her name is his Caitlin Jetalina, and she is an epidemiologist. I don't know if you've heard her. Yeah, so she she has this awesome newsletter, and it's called Your Local Epidemiologist, and she's just had great information from the start of COVID, and she had a newsletter this morning that talks about uh, vaccinating for population level benefit. You know, so this is also another piece of that puzzle that's important because she used rubella as an example. So rubella in children is is often very mild. You know, many children won't even experience any symptoms, but it can be very, very dangerous for, you know, say pregnant people or or their developing baby. So in, in that particular case, you know, we are we do and have in the past been vaccinating for a population level benefit overall. And I think it, that can be said for for COVID as well. You know, I mean, there are, obviously, we know that elderly are more at risk and things like that. But as we've mentioned, you can be essentially a completely healthy person. And I've seen many cases, you know, in the emergency room and my husband as well, where, you know, it's a it's a 30 year old, it's a 20 year old, and, and they do get admitted and they do go to the ICU and they are very sick and, and sometimes they do die. Yes, it's more rare, but you don't know if that's per- that person is going to be you or somebody you know. So I just wanted to add that in there. Pertussis is another example. You know, most kids who have most older kids who get pertussis have a cough, and yes, they you know they cough for a very long time, and they don't mm-hmm. necessarily have a, a severe outcome unless they have underlying health issues. But an infant, a young infant that gets pertussis, is going to have potentially a very severe outcome. We cocoon those little ones with people who have been vaccinated to kind of protect them, which mm-hmm. I think what you're you're thinking about. Exactly, exactly. All of this talk right now reminds me of of another question that I, I frequently get, and I'm sure you do too, which is considering the smaller sample size in this age range, people are concerned about myocarditis, considering that the older, you know, teen population, we didn't see many of, well, you know, I say many of these cases, there there aren't many, but you know, the few cases that we did see weren't seen until a little bit later on when we were vaccinating more people. So I, I completely understand this thought process that people have. And it's a very good question. You know, should we be concerned of that popping up in this younger population? And what do you think about that? The TLDR of it is potentially but the way I think about it, so if you in the general population, myocarditis is thankfully very, very rare. This is sort of pre-COVID. Even when it occurs, it tends to be on the mild side. As a pediatrician, I have seen severe myocarditis only once. And it was caused actually by Coxsackie virus, which is the virus that causes mm. hand, foot, and mouth, right? And the severity for that child was likely compounded by other factors like dehydration. Most lay people have never even heard of myocarditis before the pandemic. And then over the past six months, like you said, it's become it's received a lot more press as a rare side effect of mRNA COVID vaccines, notably in younger males between the ages of about 12 to 30 years. People hear or read the phrase inflammation of the heart, and that's alarming. What I think many media articles fail to emphasize is that the typically mild course of illness that these post-vaccinated myocarditis cases have, most kids improve with rest fluids and some anti-inflammatory medications and even those who end up in the hospitalized tend, in the hospital you know recover without much incident 
Now, if you look at the pediatric population more specifically, there have been about 40 case reports of myocarditis for every million vaccines administered in the 12 to 15 age group. And of the cases that required hospitalization across the age groups, by the time the FDA report was submitted, I think only four four cases, and I think they were like almost 800 cases initially, but only four cases remained in the ICU. When you think about myocarditis, the way to think about it is not just, oh, myocarditis as a result of the vaccination. You have to compare it to myocarditis as a result of the virus. In There was one report from September where they found that the risk of myocarditis is almost 16 times higher for patients with COVID, with COVID. compared to those without, and 37 times higher in children with COVID under 16 years. So... If you're comparing apples to apples here and you want to look at myocarditis in the two relative populations, then the risk of myocarditis is higher from from infection. I think also for the 5 to 11-year age group, the other thing to keep in mind is that myocarditis is more rare at baseline because it's thought to be related to some pubertal changes, testosterone, which is part of why we see it in those younger males that are post puberty. And so in this age group, I expect the numbers actually to be even lower. But you're right. Until we vaccinate a large population, we probably aren't going to see the reports of things like myocarditis because they are so rare. And we're all monitoring Mm -hmm. very, very closely. Yes, yes. Okay, so let's see here. What if, okay, so this is a good example. My kids actually, they all had COVID back in March of 2020. My husband, you know, went to a shift and came home and next day he's fever. (laughs) Actually, at this point, we couldn't even, this was so early on in the pandemic, we had such a difficult time finding a test. And he works for a very large institution and they were like, we don't have tests. So I called my hospital, which is, is much farther away. And I was able to get him one there. And lo and behold, it was positive. He was actually the first one in our area to have a positive test, of course, right? And I'm like 22 weeks pregnant. But our kids, about mm, four days later, all came down with a fever and you know symptoms for about 48 hours. We obviously didn't get them tested because it's near, it was nearly impossible. But you know, I, I'm fairly certain it was COVID because they weren't going anywhere necessarily because we were kind of in that like half lockdown mode already. And then lo and behold, they were all sick during that time. And then a year passes by this past Easter, my middle daughter, she was exposed at school. And, you know, we were going to go to Easter because everybody was vaccinated except for the children. And we were going to do everything outside. And we were like, you know what, let's just get her tested because she was exposed a week ago. Let's make sure. And it was positive. And I was like, how how and why do we have to go through this again? And you know, the whole repercussions of school and all of that is like such a nightmare. So, you know, theoretically, she had it back in March of 20, uh, 2020 and then tested positive again. But everybody was completely asymptomatic in our house for that entire two-week period following her positive test. Theoretically, she got it again and maybe it was, you know, a variant or what have you. But um so what would be the reason why, you know, I know a lot of parents are like, well, my my child just had COVID a couple months ago. You know, why do I need to vaccinate? What would be your answer to that? So the CDC estimates that about 40% of children have been infected, which is good, right? Because that means that they probably mm-hmm. have some protection. Obviously we would rather that they hadn't been infected, but but the situation is what it is. But I think what we don't know is how durable the immunity from an infection is. You know, if that infection was very recent, that immunity is probably better. You don't necessarily have to be the first in line to get a vaccine. But my concern is that the protection would wear off earlier than we expect. I did see a report yesterday that, you know, it does seem like hybrid immunity, sort of the combination of immunity from having survived, have the infection and then the immunity from the vaccine. If you have those two things kind of layered, that seems to be the strongest and potentially the most durable immunity. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. Like like your your child presumably had it a second time. We don't know at what point that's going to wear off. Yeah. My husband and I were having a conversation about this at dinner the other night. He was also mentioning, which is which is something we should all be thinking about is 
the possibility of this virus, you know, mutating into a different variant, as we've seen with Delta, you know, is obviously possible. And, you know, just because a certain variant or the variants that we've seen so far have been thankfully pretty good with kids, you know, as in they haven't, you know, there hasn't been a ton of hospitalizations compared to adults and and things like that. But that doesn't mean that the new variant in the future, if there is one, you know, it might affect kids more than adults. We have no idea that the unknown is, you know, infinite. So we always have to be thinking about that as well. I completely agree. Odds are this is going to become a virus that, I mean, it's not going anywhere. It's going to become endemic. We, we are all going to be exposed at some point. And if we are able to control that to some extent with minimizing the production of variants and things like that, then hopefully it will become something that's not necessarily a big deal to get. But I I do think we are all going to be exposed at some point, which is the other reason to vaccinate. If you're going to encounter it, you'd rather encounter it with all the shields. Some, exactly, exactly. Okay, so this is always a really, really big one as well. How do you measure the risk of long-term effects when we don't have this quote, like long-term data? You know, there's, there's people that are like, we don't have years of data to tell us that, you know, I won't develop, you know, X, Y, and Z later down the road as a result of this vaccine. And I understand where that question's coming from. We do know that there aren't vaccines that have had long-term consequences that have been severe. You know, I get the question about reproductive health and fertility all the time. There's no evidence that any vaccine, including the COVID-19 vaccine, can cause fertility issues. There's not really any real mechanism by which this could happen either. But I get why, why parents are asking. You know, we all want to make sure that we are setting our children up and protecting them for and their futures. All I can say is researchers and scientists have been looking at data like this for years. We know a lot about vaccines. Over the course of history, vaccine monitoring consistently tells us that reactions and adverse effects happen soon after getting that vaccine. Mm -hmm. And and within usually, I mean, the latest about six to eight weeks. In the case of these vaccines, the mRNA, the way they work, the mRNA vaccine delivers a blueprint for that spike protein, which then our body makes. The blueprint, the mRNA that was injected in, degrades. So it cannot cause a long-term response. It's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just not there. Mm -hmm. And after our Mm -hmm. body makes a spike protein, it recognizes it as foreign and then creates that antibody. But... You know, then then that antibody sort of it, it creates the memory for that antibody, and then that antibody isn't necessarily um, uh, going to come up again unless we're exposed to the virus again. Like I said earlier, the the other thing to keep in mind is that the comparison here is not long term data of the vaccine to nothing; it's long term outcomes from the vaccine versus long long term effects of COVID, right? Yes, yes. You know, we are all going to have the exposure and we know that vaccines don't cause long-term effects down the line, but we know that many vaccine-preventable illnesses can, exactly. Mm -hmm. There's no absolutes here. and I can't Mm -hmm. predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball, but if I were playing the odds and I mean, I have a six-year-old daughter, we are getting the vaccine this Saturday, which is the earliest appointment we could get because in my area, the the appointments were were, um, swooped up. Right away. (laughs) Yeah. But I, you know, playing the odds, I think that the risks of the infection are worse. As we've seen with, you know, many infected adults who have had, I mean, even just my husband, just seeing him, you know, kind of battling through this, the two weeks of of being infected was eye opening. And then, you know, even like he's a runner and six, six months to a year later, he's still like his heart rate was shooting up, you know, during workouts. And he just didn't have the lung capacity that he had had previously. And he still, to this day, doesn't have his full taste and smell back. Really? Yeah, it's, you know, he can taste food, but he's, it's like, it has to be like rather strong, you know, it's, if, if, if it's something that doesn't have like, you know, a, a really, you know, significant smell or taste, he, he won't really be able to, to figure it out. It's definitely gotten better over time. But we're, you know, we're almost two years, like, you know, this coming March, two years from when he was first infected. So it's just pretty wild. This, this uh, illness threw us all for a loop because this, this virus is so unpredictable. And that's what's scary about it. Like, we just don't know, you know, is your child going to be one of the 
uh, 30% that's going to end up in the hospital? Is Are they going to be one of the ones with mm-hmm. symptoms? Are they going to end up with long COVID? We don't have a great algorithm for predicting that. Right, right. I did this amazing, actually two of them, podcast episodes with Dr. Anita Patel about MISC, yeah. um, which was great and eye-opening. And although that is also very rare, again, we have absolutely no idea who it will affect. I mean, I have a friend that I had had in high school, haven't talked to her in, in a long time, but I had found out through the grapevine that her her son was admitted for, for quite a long time with MISC, no underlying issues. It just, it doesn't discriminate. And you never know if it's going to be your child. I mean, I can't begin to tell you when my kids were sick. I mean, I have never been more terrified in my life, especially back in March of 2020, when we had absolutely no information. It was very, very scary. And I would have begged to have had a vaccine available (laughs) at that time. You know, I mean, it's just so unpredictable. I agree. You know, since the start of the pandemic, almost 2 million kids have been in that 5 to 11 age range have been infected. Like 8,300 of them have been hospitalized and more than 5,000 have developed MISC. And that's just, that's scary to think about. I grew up in Malawi in Central Africa and we didn't have, you know, huge access to vaccines. And I, I remember, I mean, I saw people who'd had polio as children. My dad was a doctor there, um, so, mm. you know, I, and I helped him in his clinic. And I saw kids or adults who had had polio as kids just because they didn't have access to those, those vaccines. And I know that people there would, would have killed for, for access to the vaccines that we take mm. for granted here. And I, I mean, they don't necessarily have access to even this vaccine, but I would right. love to get it. Oh, that's, that's a really good example of just how incredible like it is right now with, with vaccine access, you know, like, and who knows how, how long it will be before the entire world, you know, does have access. And we are so, I think people forget how incredibly grateful we are and blessed to be able to like have access to these amazing um, medical advances when so many people don't have access. I think it's sort of a hallmark of pediatrics. You know, we're lucky that pediatrics here, we have such excellent preventive care and medical advancements that the vast majority of childhood illnesses are treatable and not fatal. But part of that is because we take any childhood death seriously. Any child that dies from a vaccine preventable illness anywhere, but especially in this country where we have easy access to those vaccines, that's one child too many. Yeah, exactly. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. Let's focus on a couple of the questions. Okay. How about this one? What's the timeline looking like for the younger age groups? You know, like the two to four and, you know, zero to two age ranges. So it's, I have a sense, but obviously, you know, it's a little bit unclear. The most recent information I've had, I've heard is that they're planning to have some data for that two to five-year-old cohort by the end of the year. My best guess is probably we wouldn't have approval till maybe February. And then for the younger group, it's probably going to be even later, like maybe late spring or early summer. I have a three-year-old and a four-month-old. And so I'm very eager, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, mm-hmm. to, to move on with, with this now. With life. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So obviously, it's flu season, flu vaccine season. And many people were asking, is it safe to receive both the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine at the same time? Or do you suggest staggering them a bit? Uh, I've gotten this question a lot. And and truly, it just depends on your comfort level. They can be given together. I wouldn't have any qualms about giving them together for my own kids. We've already had our flu vaccines. But the way I see it, the more times you go into a healthcare facility, the more likely you are to have an exposure. And not necessarily just a COVID or flu, but like, I mean, there's a lot of other viruses going around too. 
But if you're not comfortable, I think it's fine to take it a step at a time and move at your comfort level. I did find, I was I was uh, reading about this just this week, and there's one randomized controlled trial that looked at side effects and immune responses in England in adults who received the Pfizer in one arm and then either flu or placebo in the other. It looks like there wasn't really any real difference in terms of side effects or immune responses. Oh, interesting. That's good to know. Yeah, my husband had actually gotten them both, this, his booster. and. Yeah flu and nothing. (laughs) So that's good. So let's see here. Okay. What about, what are your thoughts on children needing boosters in the future? I know, you know, that this is another thing as a parent, you're like, Oh, I don't want to have to do this, you know, every six months or, you know, what have you. So obviously we've seen with the adult population that, you know, those of us that have received vaccine, like I received mine in December, we're up for, for a booster. And, you know, I know there's also been some chat, some chatter about, you know, maybe we should have increased the length in between our doses, you know, so not three weeks, maybe waiting even longer. I think there was data, was it out of the UK or something where they had staggered them? I don't know if you see like longer between the two. Yeah. And they've had better overall antibody response for longer than we have or something. Anyway, what are your thoughts on, will, will they ever maybe you know, increase that length in between the doses, especially for kids? And what are your thoughts on boosters? My thoughts on boosters extrapolating from the adult data, I think it's likely that protection will wane at some point, and that we will need booster vaccines, maybe like in the case of, you know, flu, where we do that booster every year, it's clear mm-hmm. whether that's going to be necessary only in high risk children or in old children. I, you know, over the next six to 18 months, we're going to know so much more about whether or not and and how often kids need boosters or adults need boosters. I'm wondering if this third booster that some adults are getting might generate more of a lasting immune response, but but Mm. obviously there's no way to know that yet. In terms of the time interval between the the vaccines, so it's a really interesting question. I I saw the same thing that you saw about the um, potentially more enduring, robust response if there's a longer interval, but we don't know yet what that looks like. Uh, so for now, because this has been studied with the, with a three-week interval, and right now our priority is trying to make sure that as many people are as protected as possible. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a fascinating question. I think Monica Gandhi is, she is out of one of the California institutions. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think she had mentioned something in one of her articles about potentially increasing the interval. The other question is also whether the myocarditis, if, if we do see myocarditis, whether that might be different if there's a longer interval. And I just, I don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that was kind of what my thought process was. I mean, even though, you know, the risk of myocarditis is still, you know, very low in that specific population males, 12 to 30 you know, would it maybe be even lower if we were to increase that length of time in between the doses and or decrease the dose since we have seen such a robust response in the younger kids? It's just like, just something that was kind of like, you know, running through my mind. I think my husband had myocarditis after his second Pfizer. Um, He had like this on and off chest pain that began like a week later and lasted like a month, got a workup um, and everything looked fine. And, you know, he took some anti-inflammatories and it kind of went away. But it, and it's, we've never like explored it further. But I have wondered if he had maybe some myocarditis. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I know when my husband like was sick with COVID, I mean, on I remember it was... And unless you've kind of experienced this, like early on in the pandemic, when we didn't have much information, it's, it's so hard to explain. But I, I think I actually have like some post-traumatic stress from it. But because I was literally counting down the days, you know, I was wearing an N95 24-7 because I was pregnant and I didn't have any idea what the implications of having COVID as a pregnant person would be. And as we know, it, it isn't great. <laughs> so, you know, and I actually tested negative twice during that time. I think I had actually had COVID later on after my baby was already born. But so I would wear my N95 and I would count down each day. And as we know, you know, it, it the virus is relentless and you don't actually become very ill until, you know, day seven, eight, yeah. nine, ten. All the people that I've seen in the emergency room are coming to the ER on, you know, day eight, day nine, day ten. And so you're literally counting down every 
single day. And you're like, okay, today's day seven. What's going to happen? Okay, today's day eight. And I remember being on the couch. I was in my N95. He's in his N95. And we're on opposite sides of the room and we're watching a movie together. We didn't have any options of like, I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to put my husband, you know, like as far as like exposure. He was sleeping in another room. But at the same point, like I was also pregnant and taking care of three kids. So we just called it quits at day like six. And we just started like actually like hanging out together with N95s. (laughs) So we're sitting in the same room and he, I remember he put his hand on his chest and he's not a complainer. Like he lies about everything. Like I was like, what's your temperature? And he's like 98. And it was like probably 104. Like he doesn't, you know what I mean? He doesn't want to get get me worried. So I just see him and he's like, puts his hand on his chest. And I'm like, what's wrong? And he's like, I, you know, I'm just, I'm having a little bit of some trouble breathing. And I was like, what? Because he, again, he's just not someone to ever complain. So then I started to get really worried. I like go and get my oximeter, (laughs) like checking all this stuff. And you know his oxygen saturation at several points during during this time, you know, were going pretty low. Like when he was just walking outside, because he would get outside and get some exercise, mm-hmm. just little exercise, just to get some fresh air, vitamin D, all that. And his oxygen would dip down <laughs> pretty low. You know, it's crazy what happens with this with this virus. But yeah, the chest pain. I mean, it's significant and. You know, it's just very scary because you think to yourself, like, you know, your husband experienced this after the vaccine. Like, what if he was exposed to the virus? You know, what would have happened then? You know, and you think about these people that did have any type of side effect or adverse event after they got received the vaccine. It's like, what would have happened if they were exposed to the virus? You know, that's exactly the question I've been that's been on my mind. And obviously, you can't study it. But, but I wonder if those would also be the people that are somehow primed to have a worse outcome from the virus itself. Right, exactly. And what we experienced back before all of this, I would never wish upon my work. Like it it was horrific to have to experience that and just you're essentially just a sitting duck waiting for something to happen. And it's just it's no fun. <laughs> and if there's something that can potentially protect you and give you that that shield that you that you need, then that's great. Yeah. I think what was hardest about that time was we didn't know, right? So we were like wiping down groceries and mm-hmm. in through the basement after a shift. And I would yeah. in the basement, shower in the basement and then come up and leave my shoes and everything else down there. And yes, was just, I was just so petrified as a pregnant person that I would bring this home to my family or, you know, my husband would get sick and you were hearing these stories about people dying. And I was like, what if I bring this home and my husband dies or so yes. me? I can I can understand why you would have PTSD. Yeah, that's exactly what we were doing too. We would we had a like a decon system where so I and I'll, I'll remember this day until forever. I had come home from a shift. I was pregnant and came home from my shift, and he was so cute. He had put a box in the garage, and it says you know decon, <laughs> and it was like all the different steps, right? And so you know I wasn't working a whole a whole lot because you know we have a lot of kids, and I only work when he's essentially off. So I come in, I'm like taking off my scrubs in the garage, doing all this, following all the, (laughs) all the instructions for our decon system. And I come in and this was like when he had, he had this, I call it the sick hoodie and it was, you know, uh, he had his hood on, he, he zipped all the way up and he's like walking through the kitchen. I said, what, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, you know, I'm just a little cold. I was like, you're sick. Yeah. You're sick, aren't you? And that's that's when he had COVID. But I was like, oh, and I'll just, I won't ever forget that because we were doing the same thing. Just we were undressing in the garage. We have an outdoor shower. It was cold outside. Okay. Like it was a freezing, you know, this is like spring here in New England. It's cold and we're taking outdoor showers and coming in after that. And we just didn't know. Yeah. And like we would get groceries and we would get mail and be wiping it down. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's so f- crazy to look back at that time, right? And you're just like, oh my gosh, wow. We're so lucky that we have the information we do, but there is still that element of just what if, what if. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it goes to show you something like this that could be potentially even more deadly. It could happen at any moment. You know, we'd never know. I mean, like when something's going to just pop up like it, like it did with COVID, you know? So, okay. Two more really quick ones. So say my child had COVID, 
how long after having COVID, the illness, would you recommend for that child to get the vaccine? I think it depends a little bit on your comfort level. The official answer is, you know, once they've met the criteria for discontinuing isolation, once they feel better, they can go ahead and get the vaccine. Um, When I have talked to patients and parents, I think a lot of parents feel a little bit anxious about doing it so soon. And, And that's okay, because those children most likely have some conferred immunity, some protection from having had the infection. But I wouldn't wait too long. Uh, You know, I would say within a month or two at the longest, depending on how available the COVID vaccine is for children in your area, and let other children go ahead of yours. But I would probably do it sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Now, if your child is smaller for their age, so say (laughs) they're just not meeting, you know, their typical like weight and height uh, stats at every, you know, visit. Should that be concerning? You know, if they're right on the the verge there of like being six, like would you still vaccinate that child if they're they're smaller for their age? Actually, you're describing my child perfectly. So. <laughs> my six-year-old is has always been a quote unquote failure to thrive child, you know, and she's thriving. But she's like one yeah. of those like I'm at the fifth percentile for height and weight. Yes, yes. And I've had my own heartache about that over the years, but I've accepted that, you know, this is just her now. The thing to remember is that vaccines are not the same as medications. You know, when we dose medications, we dose them based on weight for pediatric um, patients. But the way the immune system matures and works is not actually dependent on weight. It's dependent on age. So we give the same doses of many vaccines to infants and older children. Um, So I would not worry about size for this particular issue. Great explanation. Okay. All right. So now, unless you have, do you have anything you want to add that we didn't touch on as far as the COVID vaccine with relationship to to children? You know, it was this thing that you said earlier that I was just kind of thinking about, you know, there are population Mm -hmm. level benefits to getting our children vaccinated. But I think when you're a parent and you're thinking about making an individual decision for your child, sometimes you don't really want to think about the population level, right? You want to just think about like your own child and not take a risk for your child. Oh, for sure. And I understand that for sure. But I, I think that if you play the odds, the thing to do for your child to protect them is also to get the vaccine. The, the population level benefits are, are sort of an additive positive. As we as we were talking about, pretty much the whole um, the whole time here is if you were to put up, you know, the COVID virus right up next to the COVID vaccine, the benefits clearly outweigh the risks when you when you compare the vaccine to the virus because you have no idea what the implications of that virus will be in your particular child, and with the results that we have seen in the research thus far, has been really great as far as, you know, the side effects, adverse events from the vaccine itself. And now your child is protected. You know, if you put it as simple as that, you know, taking the risk of the vaccine is, in my opinion, much preferred over, I mean, your child will be infected with COVID. (laughs) As you mentioned, you know, this is something somebody, everybody's going to get. Um, So if you do remain unvaccinated, this is definitely something you need to be thinking about because it's not like you're just going to be able to like, slide under the radar and never be infected when, you know, so much of the po- the world population has been infected thus far. I agree. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, think I saw that you said that you're a fan of ZDog MD and I, I yeah. his podcasts and, and videos too. And I, at some point he said something like every single one of us has a, has a date with COVID in our future. And, you know, <laughs> he, he put it the way he puts things, but he's like, oh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I really enjoy him for many different reasons. But I just I love that he comes from everything from, you know, that alt middle perspective, because I think it really helps to move along the conversation instead of kind of halting it in its tracks when it comes to a difference of opinion. And he had he had done a show, I think it was with Vinay Prasad a few months ago about masking in kids. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to it <laughs> and I remember saying, what? No. Oh my gosh. No. Oh, why would you? No. And, and then I, I found myself like, Lindsay, why are you feeling so unwilling to listen to what he wants to say about masking in children? And I listened to the whole episode and I was like, wow. And I was just, I was like, oh, I need to be much more open to hearing all of these different perspectives because, you know, what he had to say about masking and, you know, the younger, younger, younger kids was just really, really interesting. But I was like unwilling to hear it at the time. <laughs> 
Because I was like, what? What? And I mean, it makes sense, you know, that they haven't done the randomized controlled studies. Like you said, they probably won't. But also, though, I mean, my kids have like, I don't even think they... They've ever really cared about the mask, to be completely honest with you. And now I do think that there are some children that either have, you know, a, a speech impairment or hearing impairment that could benefit greatly from from not using these masks anymore, because you know I, that's like quite impossible to to learn how to speak properly if you have you know a hearing condition or you know a speech impediment or whatever. But for the most part, most kids are like, I don't care. <laughs> You know what I mean? They're the same. I actually have two responses to that, though. One is that I definitely have had patients where they have been really unfairly hampered by the masks. But like you said, the majority of of patients and my own kids all do fine with masking. And, And the way I think about it is, you know, there are culturally across the world, there are cultures where facial coverings are are traditional or also other countries where, you know, masking at certain times of the year is traditional or Mm -hmm. sort of approved. As far as I'm aware, those countries don't have higher rates of developmental delay or speech delay or anything else like that, which I think is like a good perspective to keep in mind. But Mm -hmm. the most important point kind of relating to our whole conversation is the way to get rid of those masks is to get to the point where we have this under control. And the way to get this under control is to get the immunity, get vaccinated. Yeah. I I never thought about that actually, um, that you had just mentioned with the face coverings in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never even thought about that. That's an interesting, no, that's an interesting point. Okay. So let's see anything else that you have. Uh, no, I think, uh, this is a really valuable conversation way too often in the media. There's, there's a very black and white approach to, I mean, most parenting questions, but especially this stuff, you know, either, Mm -hmm yes, you must mask and there are no issues with masks or no, masks are terrible. Um, and then same with the vaccine. Like it's just, there's so much more nuance and like gray area with all these parenting questions. And, and that's why I think a, a conversation like this is valuable because I don't think parents want to be put into the, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. I'm not even going to talk to you. Kind of yes. Everyone is yes. concerns and those are legitimate concerns. Yeah, I, I love that you brought that up because there are so many moms who will reach out to me and you know, they always start off with, I, I swear I'm not anti-vaccine, but I just have questions. And listen, there is not absolutely nothing wrong with being hesitant about this and you know, looking deeper and talking with, you know, your pediatrician and your primary care and all, you know, all the people that are within your medical wheelhouse and just saying, I really want to understand the risks and benefits for my children. I mean, these are your children. Everybody wants what's best for their kids. Everybody, even the people that choose not to vaccinate their kids, they they truly believe they are doing what they think is best for their children. Like as a mom, that's, I truly believe that. Like we are all just trying to do what's best. So to have questions and to be hesitant and all of that, I think that's great. I think that just means, you know, like you're, you're being a good mom. You're you're looking into things for your child, and you have questions that need to be answered. So, yeah, then, like, I think looking that's at great. your sources and where you're getting your information is helpful too. I've actually, you know, I think a valuable question is always to ask your pediatrician what they're going to do for their kids. And I've asked a lot of pediatricians, a lot of physicians, and I don't know any that are not vaccinating their children. And you know, these are people that have looked at the data and have the background mm-hmm. to understand and analyze that data, and that that's pretty telling. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say the same from, you know, the emergency medicine perspective. I haven't met or talked to anybody who is not vaccinating their kids. I think the only thing that, you know, one of my questions as a medical provider was and is, you know, the the kids who have had COVID that are going to receive this vaccination, what's the side effect or adverse event profile going to look like for them? Because we don't necessarily have that specific information yet. You know, now again, I don't think that it means that we're going to have this really severe adverse event. I'm just saying, you know, will they feel more feverish? Will they feel more achy? You know, like that sort of thing, not necessarily on the extreme side of things. That information pretty soon. I mean, a ton of children have been vaccinated already. Exactly.
Yeah. So this was great. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you two questions that don't have anything to do with <laughs> what we were chatting about. So the the first question is, if you could give a piece of advice to, to moms, what would it be? It can be about anything. The reason that I created the pediatrician mom was because of this. And it sort of relates actually to what we were talking about. This black and white like idea of parenting is just incorrect. And Every child is different. Every parent is different. Every family is different. And what I want to tell every parent out there is there is a reason to trust your gut. Um, you know, you want to do that within an evidence-based framework and you want to have resources that you can trust and rely on. But there's no single right answer for the majority of parenting questions. It's all full of nuance. And and it's okay to not necessarily go by the book. Obviously, you want to do things that are safe, but you know, baby led weaning versus purees or, you know, there's so many things like that where there's no single right answer and that's okay. Yes. Yeah. I like that a lot. Okay. Second question is if you could make one dinner for your family that is quick, easy, and that everybody will eat, what would it be? You know, I would have said pizza, but I have a kid that doesn't like pizza, which is my mind. Um, so it's pasta in our house. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's wild. No, even just, just plain old cheap cheese pizza? Nothing? She doesn't like the tomato sauce. Oh, what about just like if it was just plain with just she cheese it on if top? It's, if it's like dough with just cheese on top, cheese that's, that's like bread and cheese basically, right? Yeah. Sandwich. <laughs> grilled cheese. <laughs> well, she doesn't like grilled cheese either. Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. Is she one of those that's just super picky? She's gotten better. So she's six now. She's gotten better, but she likes deconstructed meals. So, you know, with pasta, yeah. because my other kid like doesn't mind sauce and, and spice and things like that, but she wants, you know, everything separate and pasta allows you to do that. You know, I was, this just came up in my last podcast and we were talking about meals and we were talking about how when you don't know what to make and you just need it to be quick and you want everybody to eat, just deconstruct it. And when the kids are able to like have it all separated and put it together if they want to or add what they want to, it's just overall always a better outcome. And it keeps everybody, <laughs> which means that you do yeah. not have that headache. Right. Exactly. Like a deconstructed fajita or burrito bowl or something is like always great, you know, because they can just pick and choose what they want. Okay. Awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I really appreciate this. And I just, I know it will be helpful for so many and yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for, for doing this. I, you know, what you're doing is very, very valuable. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to motherhood meets medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.